My message this morning I titled, They Helped Them to Understand. They Needed Understanding. And I'm going to be reading this morning from the Message Bible. I typically used the New King James Version, as most of you know, but I really like the way the Message Bible read this passage from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 18. It's a little bit of a long reading, and I'll just give you fair warning before I even begin. There's a lot of names in here that I know that I'm not going to pronounce correctly, so just bear with me. And because, uh, you know, I'm not a scholar in Greek or Hebrew, so I'm not going to do some of these names as much justice as I try to pronounce them. So I'll just do the best I can. Before I begin, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we do praise you and magnify you. Father, may we humbly bow before you with our lives. Father, may we surrender our lives to you. May we hunger and thirst for you. Father, may we want more of you all the time, Father. That's our focus today, to want more of you, Father. That's what each of us should desire. Father, I pray your anointing be in this place. I pray that your anointing will be on the, the airways as it goes out over the phone and over the internet. And I just pray that you would be glorified, Father. I pray that your word, your truth would be spoken. I pray that hearts would be lifted up. I pray that people would be relieved from stress or distress. Or, or whatever is in their lives, whatever they're dealing with. I pray that your peace, Lord God, will be felt and be experienced today by the preaching of your word for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. By the time the seventh month arrived, the people of Israel were settled in their own towns. Now we're talking about the people of Israel that have come back from captivity in Babylon. They've returned to Jerusalem. They've come back and they've settled in their own towns. Then all the people gathered as one person in the town square in front of the water gate and asked the scholar Ezra to bring the book of the revelation of Moses that God had commanded for Israel. So they want them to bring the book, the revelation that God gave Moses for Israel. So Ezra the high priest or the priest brought the revelation to the congregation which was made up of both men and women everyone capable of understanding. I'm going to have to just keep pausing as I go through here. The fool was not there. The idiot that could not understand was not there. Everyone though that had the capacity to be able to understand what Ezra was going to teach was there to hear that day. It was the first day of the seventh month he read it facing the town square at the water gate from early dawn until noon in the hearing of the men and women, all who could understand it. And all the people listened. They were all ears to the book of the Revelation. The scholar Ezra stood on the wooden platform constructed for the occasion. He was flanked on the right hand by Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Matt, Masiah, and on the left by Padiah, Mashal, Milkajah, Hashem, Hashbadadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Why do you have to have people on both sides, right? There's just more names. <laughs> How amazing, though, that they named the names, right? Amen. Amen. Ezra opened the book, and every eye was on him. He was standing on the raised platform, and as he opened the book, everyone stood. 
Everyone stood. They're ready, man. Ezra's going to read the book. They're longing to hear it. My friends, I envisioned great anticipation. Great anticipation for the Word of God. Hunger. Are we hungry, right? Then Ezra praised God, the great God, and all the people responded, Oh, yes, yes, with raised hands, with hands raised high. Then they fell to their knees in worship of God, their faces to the ground. Jeshua, Bani, Sharibiah, Jami, Akaba, Akab, Shabithai, Hodiah, Messiah, Keltiah, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peleah, all Levites explained the revelation while the people stood listening respectfully. They translated the book of the revelation of God so the people could understand it and then explained the reading. Nehemiah the governor, along with Ezra the priest and scholar, and the Levites who were teaching the people, said to all the people, This day is a holy day to your God. Don't weep and carry on. They said this because all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the revelation. He continued, Go home and prepare a feast, holiday food and drink, and share it with those who don't have anything. This day is holy to God. Don't feel bad. The joy of God is your strength. The Levites calmed the people. Quiet now. This is a holy day. Don't be upset. So the people went off to feast, eating and drinking, and including the poor in a great celebration. Now they got it. So they understood, right? They understood the reading that had been given to them. And on the second day of the month, the family heads of all the people, the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra, the scholar, to get a deeper understanding of the word of the revelation. My friends, are we going deeper? They wanted a deeper understanding of the word of the revelations. They found written in the revelation that God commanded through Moses that the people of Israel are to live in booths during the festival of the seventh month. So they published this, this decree and had it posted in all their cities and in Jerusalem. Go into the hills and collect olive branches, pine branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and other leafy branches to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out, brought in branches, and made themselves booths on the roofs, courtyards, and the courtyards of the temple of God, the Watergate, of God, of plaza, the Watergate Plaza and the Ephraim Gate Plaza. The entire congregation that had come back from exile made booths to live in them. The people of Israel hadn't done this from the time of Joshua, son of Nun, until that very day. A terrific day, great joy, as we read from the book of the Revelation of God each day, from the first to the last day. They celebrated the feast for seven days. On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly in accordance with the decree. May God add His blessing to the hearing and the reading of His holy word. The first seventh the first seven, not seven, the first seven chapters of Nehemiah are dedicated to the account of Nehemiah returning from Sushan. Remember, all the Israelites were exiled to Babylon. But Nehemiah had risen to a very high position. 
He was the cupbearer for the king. So imagine, he's in the presence of the king of Babylon, hearing all that goes on and knowing what's happening. A very high position for this Israelite. But somebody had came to visit, and he asked, how are things going in my home country? How are things going in Jerusalem? How are the people? And they reported that the people were very distressed. Very distressed. They've returned. Yes, they've rebuilt their homes. Or, you know, maybe they had to repair the roofs or repair the doors. And they even rebuilt the temple. Or repaired the temple, I should say, not rebuilt. They repaired the temple. But the walls of the city were still destroyed. The gates were burned. So, the walls of Jerusalem was a very important part of the city. That was their protection. And apparently, rebuilding the wall was too great a task for just anybody. You know, I could build you a house. I can build a house. I know how to build a house. But don't ask me to build a skyscraper. Right? I mean, I have the ability to build a house, but... I wouldn't have a clue how to build a skyscraper. The only thing I know is you're probably going to have to go real deep because there's a whole lot sticking out of the ground. But I don't have the ability to do that. Apparently they had nobody with the ability or the ability to encourage the people to rebuild the wall. Enter in Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the man. He is the man that God had given the ability, the ability to not over, only oversee this project, that wall was two and a half miles long, 40 feet high, and 8 feet thick, with gates everywhere. Quite an undertaking. And they did it in 52 days. Rebuilt the wall. He was the man that God chosen. Definitely a man of action. A man that can encourage people. Move, you know, people out, we'll work, just tell us what to do. So that's where everyone else was. <laughs> yeah, they were a union. They needed their break. But Nehemiah was that man to give them that nudge and encourage them on. Ezra had returned to Jerusalem 13 years before Nehemiah. I didn't know that until I was studying this out. Nehemiah was not the scholar that Ezra was, but it appears that his zeal had such a great impact that it even encouraged Ezra to get out there and share this great knowledge. Share what God has given you. Maybe those 13 years was 13 years of training. To, for him to get back into God's Word and get closer. Remember, they were exiled. Ezra 7, 8-10 through 10 says, And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the first, day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, so not just to learn the law, but to do it. My friends, we might know it, but do we do it? Do we practice it, right? And to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. See, it was not only for his own understanding. We can study this word every day and every day, but my friends, it's not just for us. Let's teach others, right? Ezra, teaching others. He knew. The people knew. They needed revived. They've been exiled for 70 years. They needed revived. I found an illustration. And it's about being revived, but not spiritually, but physically. And you know, it's a story about a lifeguard. And it's just a fictional story to reveal a truth. 
You know this lifeguards, he's up on his perch, and he, he looks out into this, the ocean there, and he, he sees a, a young boy bobbling face down in the water. Man, he's off of that perch, grabs his life preserver, and man just speeds across that beach the way he's been trained, into the water and dives headlong, swims out to the young boy. His body's already turning blue, and he grabs him, flips him over, and swims back to shore as fast as he can with that young boy and drags him up onto the beach. Of course, the crowds are gathering. The parents, unbeknownst to them, they didn't know that their young boy was in a terrible, life-threatening situation. But they get him up there, and they try to get the people back, and other emergency personnel has arrived. But the people, they're, they're distressed. They look at that young boy. He's pale, he's, or he's blue. They're thinking... He's not breathing. He's, he's, he's not alive. So they're all in distress, all except for that emergency personnel who know better. They begin to breathe the breath of life into that young boy and press down on his chest in what seems like an hour but was probably only actual a few minutes. All of a sudden, the little boy coughs, right? They've got to roll him onto his side and let him get out of him all that stuff that's in his stomach and his lungs. In just a little time... Color came back, and the little boy's up, running around, he's doing well. He needed the breath of life. He needed that life breathe into him. My friends, there's many today, they're not drowning in the water, but they're drowning in life. The people of Israel were distressed. They had a, a thing that needed accomplished that they couldn't do, they couldn't handle it. But also they knew that they needed new spiritual life. Breathe into them. You know, I know that's a fictional story. And we was at the beach a couple of years ago. And we seen a young boy, probably only this big, running up the beach. Parents weren't with him. He had gotten lost. And I look back and I see a lifeguard. So I'm running to the lifeguard. I'm not a real fast runner anymore, but I'm running to the lifeguard and I had to get within 10 feet of that stand so I could get his attention because he was looking at his cell phone. I mean, God help that little boy that might be out in the water drowning today because them lifeguards are going to be looking at their cell phones. Pay attention. Get your nose out of that phone and computer and pay attention to people. That's what they're there to do, right? Our passage in Nehemiah was similar to this fictional story though. Those people knew. They knew that they needed life. They knew that they were distressed. They knew that they needed revived. They needed a new breath from God. My friends, are we there? Verse 1 said, They ask, the people ask Ezra, bring the book of the revelation of Moses that God had commanded for Israel. My friends, if a person has an addiction, let's use alcoholism. What is the very first step for that person to get help or to get healed of alcoholism? What's the first step? Admitting they have a problem. Admitting, thank you, Justin. Admitting they have a problem. That's step number one. I have a problem. I need help. I can't do this myself. I had two grandfathers that were alcoholics. The one, his alcoholism was so bad that he was in the hospital and he drank something he shouldn't have. And he died before I was even born. I never even got to meet him. All I could, knew was pictures of him. Then the other grandfather, 
He knew he had a problem, admitted his problem, and got help and lived to be about 90. So he was a recovering alcoholic for 45, 50 years and a wonderful man, and he helped others. First step is acknowledging we need help, acknowledging we have a problem. Israel was acknowledging their shortcomings when they asked Ezra to teach them from the book of Revelation. They didn't have a copy of the Holy Bible. I mean, that was centuries, centuries later, many centuries later, right? They didn't have a copy of the Revelations of Moses. The only ones that had those was the priest. So this was the only way that they could learn what God desired of them. What is God's plan for our lives? Ezra, please, teach us. Show us. Show us what we need to do. They were hungry for the Word. They were hungry for the Word of God. C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Friends, we were made for another world. You know, there's a sin-gouged hole in the heart of every person alive. A deep void that screams to be filled. We attempt to fill that void with everything from adrenaline rush activities to relationships to careers. But the problem with these attempts is that none of them will ultimately satisfy that void. You may find a certain amount of enjoyment. You might find a little bit of contentment here and there in those things. But in the end, you'll still find yourself empty and longing for more. That huge void is still going to be empty. Perfect example, my friends, is King Solomon. Is he not? It's hard for us to wrap our minds around how rich he really was. In Kings 10.14, it tells us that Solomon had received 666 talents of gold each and every year as a base income. And today, you convert that to today's money, what they had then compared to what we have today, it would be $1.5 billion a year. Come on now, what am I going to do with all that money, right? What am I going to do with that? That's a lot of money no matter what century you live in. So basically, Solomon was so rich, he could buy whatever he wanted. And he took full advantage of his assets. He wrote in Ecclesiastes 2.10, And whatever my eyes desire, I did not keep from him, from them. Whatever my eyes desired, I had it. That's what he's saying. I kept my heart from no pleasure whatsoever. You know, isn't that the dream of many men today? Oh, if I could just win the, the Powerball, right? If I could win the lottery, I'd be set, right? Unlimited resources, power, respect, excitement, pleasure. Right? I could just win the lottery. Well, Solomon had it all. But listen to what Solomon eventually confessed. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expanded, and, and in toil I had expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity in striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Ecclesiastes 2.11 
nothing to be gained under the sun. He, he withheld from his pleasure nothing that his eyes saw, but he found that it was still empty. He still had that void, that gapping void in his heart. All vanity, striving after wind, nothing to be gained. Those are some powerful words, aren't they? But it gets worse. In verse 17, he said, So I hated life. The guy had everything. Women, event, adventure, power. He had more wives than any one man would ever need. No man needs more than one. <laughs> amen. Do I get an amen? I hear him going down the road. Amen. <laughs> Unlimited resources. Anything that he desired to build, he could build. Beautiful retreats. But he ends up hating life. Hating life. That's because nothing can fill that void except God. And what was true for Solomon, my friends, is true for us. All the money in the world is not going to fill that void. Give us the contentment that we can find in God. We may try to fill that void, but we'll end up hating those things because they take so much of our time. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They shall be filled. Verse 9 in our passage said, Nehemiah the governor, along with Ezra the priest, and scholar and the Levites who were teaching the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to God, your God, don't weep and carry on. They said this because all the people were weeping as they heard the word of the revelation. Why were they weeping? Because they were hearing the truth. They were hearing the truth. They were hearing God's plan, God's purpose for their lives. They were hearing about their sins. God's word, the law, reveals sin, right? Is that what the law does? It reveals areas where we need to get right with God. Oh, that's a sin. I repent of that, Lord. Their hearts were tender. Their hearts were convicted because they had not been walking in the plans and the ways that God had ordained for them to walk. They realized that they had not been keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. <clears throat> that was on the second day of the reading. So what did they do? Posted, everyone go out and gather your branches. We need to build booths. Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. <clears throat> it was celebrated on the 15th, of the, the 15th of the Hebrew month Tishri, which was the seventh month on the Hebrew calendar. It would be our mid-September to October. The feast would begin five days after the Day of Atonement at the time of the fall harvest or the, when the fall harvest, rather, had just been completed. But what was this about? What was this Feast of Booths? It was a time, yes, to celebrate God's provision for the harvest that they had just completed, all that God had provided for them, but also a time to remember their time in the wilderness. To remember that time, 40 years out there in the wilderness, that barren land, and God provided he provided manna from heaven six days a week. He rested on the seventh. We all know that story. When you go out to gather on the sixth day, gather twice as much, and it'll carry through the seventh. 
you'll have food for the Sabbath day. If they would go out on any other day and grab up twice as much, it's going to be rotten the next morning. But if they were faithful to God to follow what He commanded and only gather that much, it was good. It lasted all day. Fed their families. God provided quail. God provided water. Water from a rock. So that's what this time in the booths was. You know, get out of your comfortable houses and remember what I did for you. Remember. Think back. Remember what I did for your ancestors. So it was a time of remembrance. Focusing on God. Hungering for God. The reading of the Word convicted them. It moved them to act. In Acts, in the New Testament, Peter preaching to the people. In Acts 2, verse 36-39, says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So their hearts were tender also. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. My friends, the heart has to be tender. The heart has to be ready to hear the Word of God. It brought them to tears. Have we come to that place where the Word of God will convict us and bring us to tears? That we will hunger for more, that we will want more of God. That we will want to know God's plan for our lives. What is our purpose? Our purpose is to understand Him. Our purpose is to have a relationship with Him. But we are planned for eternity. But the only way there is through Jesus Christ. But we must repent of our sins and believe in Him. You know that word it says was for those afar off. It didn't mean those in a distant land. Maybe not only in a distant land, but it also meant those afar off in time. My friends, it's meant for us today. Repent of your sins. Every one of you, repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And He will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God has given us the means to revive a cold heart. A means to fill that void. A means to breathe breath into that spiritual life that we need, that, that we desire. To restore that passion for Him. Ecclesiastes 3.11 said He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. We will not find... God has put eternity in every one of our hearts. We're created in His image. His plan was that man would live for eternity with Him and that relationship, He put it into the hearts of every man and every woman. And I tell you, we cannot find eternity in the temporary things of this world. You will not find it. You will only find it in relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son, and God the Father, and Holy Spirit. That's the only place we can find eternity.
For there is salvation in none other than Jesus Christ. Have you made... Well, let me say this back up. St. Augustine says, You have made us for yourselves, O God. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Nice quote. My friends, are you weary? Are you distressed? Are you discouraged? Do you need rest for your soul? You will find it no other place than God. He is the only place that will find rest for our souls, the only place that will fill that void that is in our hearts. Because God has put eternity in there. That's that void that needs filled. And only He can fill it. So anyone that may be listening to today, I encourage you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him. It says, come to... Let's see, how does that word? Ye who are weary, come to Me and you shall find rest. If your load is heavy, come to Him. He may not take that load clean off of you, but He's going to help you bear it. You'll find rest for your soul. Your eternity. Your eternal soul. Amen?